Hello and welcome to another episode of Kaiju Curry House. This is episode 64. My name is Alex. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Joe and Paul. But today we have a very special guest, Mr. Tim Doyle, who was one of the principal writers of the TV show from 1991 to 1994, Dinosaurs. How's it going, Tim? Uh, It's going well for me. How is it going for you? Splendid, thank you. Did I get the years right for that? Was it 1991 to 1994? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, splendid. Early 90s, anyway. Um, It's prime dinosaur time, to be fair. It is prime dinosaur time, definitely. Uh, And this show was described as being one of the most forward-thinking prehistoric shows ever made, which I quite liked as a description. (laughs) Joe, what have Kaiju been up to? Funny you should ask, because I had a dinosaur-esque parcel come in the mail just yesterday, I saw on our Facebook group that Tammy and the T-Rex was finally released with its very gory rated R cut. Strangely, um, I'm not sure many of our listeners will know this, but Niece Richards and Paul Walker were once in a schlocky, I guess would be the word to call it, Mm. uh, dinosaur movie where Paul Ryan, that would be Denise Richards' boyfriend in the film, gets his brain put into a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And... I don't need to know any more about the plot of the film. I was kind of hooked and see, needed to see where it was going from there. But anyway, uh, it got a special edition 4K release with an art book and, <laughs> and commentary and the whole lot. So for the 15 quid it was on Amazon, I was like, you know what? We're going to make lockdown a little bit more interesting. I'll go for it. Was it worth so, your time? I have not watched it yet. You see, wow. I have my fabulous female partner, Don, and I am going to coerce her into watching it with me mm. because she has such a wonderful take on my films. So that is what I have planned for some point during uh, the rest of this weekend. But uh, there we go. Tim, you're a special guest. What have Kaiju been up to? What creature-related thing has come upon your radar recently? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not in that world. I, uh, I'm a sitcom guy. So, uh, my, I guess my one brush with Kaiju is my infamous relationship to the dinosaurs show going back to the early nineties. Um, you know, the, the things that I work on in this business have been more about, uh, you know, families and funny relationships among people. Uh, so So throw out what you've been working on recently then let's hear well, I mean, uh, the, my, my show, I, I created a show that was on ABC here in America, and I don't know what version of it you got in the UK, but um, I created a show two years ago called uh, The Kids Are All Right, uh, oh, which was- that's awesome. Which was about, uh, of my family, about a family with eight boys growing up in the 1970s in Los Angeles. And uh, we did, uh, we did uh, 23 episodes. Uh, And then ABC did not pick it up for another season, which uh, makes no sense because I think our numbers were very good and the show was very well regarded critically. So I would urge your um, your listeners to check out The Kids Are All Right from uh, from Disney and ABC uh, in whatever form of streaming or, you know, uh, Apple TV or whatever it is that you folks have for finding things like that. It's quite funny. And, um, you know, and uh, really, it's uh, it's. It's a good bookend to my career, which started in 1990 with dinosaurs and seems to have run aground now in the cancellation of my uh, of my uh, favorite project, the uh, the series, The Kids Are All Right, which was autobiographical and just a wonderful experience all around, right up to the point where they pulled the plug for uh, for no good goddamn reason. 
<laughs> well, I'll definitely be checking that out. Well, yeah. thank you for sharing that. But there are no monsters in it. Uh, I, I know you guys are, you know, do do a lot with uh, with monsters, with giant dinosaurs, and uh, and sometimes robots. Are they robot dinosaurs sometimes too, uh, or are they always um, sometimes? Sometimes. <laughs> they have been, yeah. I mean, it, it, the Pacific Rim movies. Those are those are robot dinosaurs fighting real dinosaurs, right? Yeah, they're like mecha, so mechanical fighting against um, monsters. But I think the thing that's unified us three hosts has been having people on with an interest in practical special effects. So yeah. one of the things that we all love about dinosaurs is the fact that it's people in suits. We, we love suitmation. So our love comes from things like Harry Harryhausen films. It doesn't necessarily uh. have to kind of be creature cinema, you know, sort of, it, it doesn't have to be Godzilla, if that makes any sense. It's just, we, we have a broad love of anything kind of practical. Oh, well, that makes sense. I mean, the accomplishment of dinosaurs, uh, the, uh, that show, there, there will never be anything done like that again. You know, the, um, the process of creating those walk-around characters, which, uh, um, well, I mean, so just for those who aren't familiar with the show, it was a sitcom about a dinosaur family and, uh, and the premise of the show was sort of that dinosaurs had gone from being these creatures in the wild and, and this sort of uh, um, uh, feral existence that we know dinosaurs to have had. In, in our storyline, in our timeline, they had evolved at dominating the earth to the point where they now lived in houses and they had you know, what would be recognizable as sort of American nuclear families. Uh, and so it was a sitcom about a dinosaur family that sat around a you know kitchen table and ate meals and you know ostensibly slept in beds and you know whatever drove cars and <laughs> that kind of stuff. So um, and what it, you know and uh, it was a chance to sort of make commentary about our culture uh, and you know and politics and society because the dinosaurs are a great metaphor. Um, for the way Americans live in terms of being awful consumerists and being very shallow and short-sighted and, uh, you know, and um, not, you know, not always being the best stewards of the environment, that kind of thing. So it, uh, it that's what the show became for 65 episodes in the early 90s, an opportunity for us to comment on the, the world we were living in, uh, ostensibly through a, you know, a children's show. And, um, but the technology involved was insane. The, the Jim Henson company did the, the creatures and, and the, the, they're called the, the Jim Henson Creature Shop. And it was, it was absurd. There, there were people inside these suits and then on top of their head, kind of balancing on their head uh, was this, this, this face that was, an, uh, was an, a robotic face that was operated then by uh, puppeteers uh, by remote control off camera. Uh, so there'd be a guy walking around in a suit and then there'd be a puppeteer off camera saying, uh, hi, honey, I'm home as he, he or she manipulates the buttons to make the mouth flap and the eyes and then another the eyes roll and stuff. And the person inside the suit is waving the arms around and doing, you know, and moving from place to place, very carefully rehearsed, you know, and then in post, we would, we would redub the voices with, um, with American actors generally, uh, you know, although sometimes the people in the suits were allowed to do the voices, but generally we replaced, certainly for the principal actors, we replaced the voices. And um, 
what was amusing, and you may be able to find some video of it on the internet, is that a lot of the original puppeteers coming from the Jim Henson Company, uh, which was centered in London in at that time in the 80s and 90s, uh, there's, there's several of them are British uh, uh, puppeteers. Uh, there's a, a one of a guy named Mac um, Mac Wilson was the puppeteer for Earl, the main dinosaur, uh, for most of the run of the show. And so you'd have Mac Wilson say. Uh, Hi, honey, I'm home. You know, and he would, he, you'd hear him on the audio track of the edit, you know, doing, doing this voice. And then we replaced him with Stuart Pankin, who's an American actor uh, who did, you know, who's actually the voice. But uh, uh, there was another, there's another actor, uh, another British uh, guy, <clears throat> Dave Greenaway. It was a large, it was a, it was almost 50 50 the crew because a lot of them had come over from London to do the show. There was David Greenaway, who I lost track of the last few years, but a remarkably funny guy. But he was inside the costume of, he was a, one of the main puppeteers for, uh, for uh, the friend Roy, you know, the, the, the Tyrannosaurus Rex with the tiny hands. Yeah. And, Dave, and Dave Greenaway had a very pronounced accent. It'd be like, hey, Pally boy, you know, and it was very, <laughs> it was, it was, it, again, you'd, we'd look at the rough cuts of the episodes before the voices were laid in, and it was a completely different show. Uh, you know, very working class uh, Brit. <laughs> but it's incredible that there's three layers to that. The fact that you were saying there's the animatronics, there's the person in the suit, and then there's the, the dubbing of multiple actors. It's incredible how complex that is. It is I never oh. even thought about that. Do you, oh, I mean, you watch it as a child. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it's, well, look, it's meant to be seamless. It's yeah, meant to be absolutely seamless. And, and, and if you, and what's also hilarious is it was insanely expensive. Right. <laughs> it, was, it was insanely expensive. And yeah, they would, that's why no one would ever do it this way again. It was a, like no. a crazy experiment that happened only because of the limits of the technology at the time. But mm. you could make a show that looked exactly like dinosaurs. Now with CG, only obviously the dinosaurs could, you know, whatever, you know, ride a skateboard and turn cartwheels and, and uh, you know, and you know, and would do handstands and stuff. They would, you know, fly through the air with, I mean, we ended up having to, um, you know, work within the constraints of these ridiculous suits that these people had to wear. I mean, the, the guy in the Earl costume, Bill Beretta, you know, I mean, he was, you know, he had, he, he would lose, you know, you know, five pounds of water weight uh, you know, after a day of after a day in the suit, uh, I was on set one time when one of the actors got sick and threw up inside the costume. Good lord! <laughs> and they had to take the head off, and then he get him out of it and clean it out. And you know, I mean, the it at least initially while we were figuring out the logistics of it, just just to get them to to move across the room at, at first was insanely difficult. So if you if you watch the early episodes, there's a we're a lot less adept. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the characters tend to plant themselves in one spot and stay there for several minutes and, uh, and stuff. It, but over time, we, you know, we figured out, figured out how to do it better and better. And, and we started to do, be more creative with it, you know, and, uh, and obviously the, the walk around puppets were, were then paired with, um, with hand puppets. The baby was a hand puppet. There was, you know, there was nobody inside that. The, there was a, the the stage was built up four feet, and so Kevin Clash, uh, who was the puppeteer for the baby, who by the way is also who he, he also famously puppets the character of Elmo on Sesame Street. And if you if you listen wow. closely, I, I can't hear that now. Yes, the baby yeah. and Elmo. 
are exactly the same voice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the baby, you know. I'm the baby, you know. Uh, it's I want to hear it's... Elmo say, not the mama. <laughs> yeah. Not the mama. I, I think Kevin yeah. will, I think Kevin does that upon yeah, the yeah. man. But, um, you know, they, he would stand on the stage and puppet the baby, you know, through all these various holes cut in the floor and furniture and things uh, in order to do that. And then, and then we, but we also did this very difficult thing where we would pair these giant walk around suits with, uh, smaller hand puppets, and then we would have to cheat perspective and and do green screen work to make the the small hand puppets as big as the giant walk around puppets. So, for example, Earl's terrifying boss, Mr. Richfield, uh, the uh, the the he's a like a. Styracosaurus. Yeah. Uh, yes, a Styracosaurus. Thank you. Uh, sitting behind this desk, you know, and voiced by the 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 very funny Sherman Hemsley who you will remember from uh, the Jeffersons, actor Sherman Hemsley, black actor uh, Sherman Hemsley. Anyway, maybe you don't remember the Jeffersons, but because but, I'm much, much older than you, but uh, Sherman was great and very funny. Uh, but he, the terrifying boss, Mr. Richfield, who's supposed to be this big imposing figure, his puppet was about this big. And and so we would do this false perspective stuff. We do an over the shoulder, uh, uh, over Richfield's shoulder toward, you know, uh, when he's talking to Earl and make make uh, the Mr. Uh, Richfield very large in the foreground, and then and then you do a cutaway to him and the camera would be closer, making him look really big. And he had all these tiny props. He had you know a coffee cup that was this big on his desk and pencils and and papers and stuff. All this sort of fake uh, you know proportion to make him look like a giant when he was actually much smaller than the other characters. And, and then occasionally we would do something with green screen to sort of put him, you know, sitting at the same table with Earl or something, we would, you know, re replace his, uh, replace the, uh, the image with a larger version of the image and, and, and do that kind of thing. But um, there was a lot of extremely tricky special effects stuff that had to be manipulated in order to do the very ambitious things that we were trying to do with the show. And, um, and everybody rose to the occasion. Again, the, uh, the, the people from the creature shop, uh, they worked insane hours. The, the, the heads would break down and, and the stage would be you know, shut down for a few hours while somebody's putting, you know, putting Earl's eyeballs back in. You know, uh, there's lots of uh, footage somewhere, again, if you scour the internet, of, of the faces locking up in a, in a weird contortion, you know, and, and, and somebody having to sort of take it off. And I mean, there was, it was, it was hell on the stage for those people who did that work. Fortunately, I spent very little time on the stage. We sat in a writer's room eating tasty snacks and having meals delivered to us and, and uh, cracking wise all day, just writing the scripts. Uh, you would go down to the stage when there was an episode that you were, that you had your name on, let's say as the writer or, were, or felt strongly about in one way or another to, to kind of make sure that they shot things correctly. But um, the stage was a miserable place. It was just such a tough slog down there for those people. And, uh, and I'm surprised to this day that there aren't lawsuits because of, you know, we were asking these suit performers to carry this heavy thing on top of their necks. And, uh, and they had, you know, they all had back problems. <laughs> they were in tremendous pain. I, I'm astonished that there haven't been lawsuits. Uh, but, um, you know, that, but that, uh, that speaks well of the people that we worked with because they were, they were a pretty great crew. And what actually gave the inspiration for writing a family sitcom about dinosaurs? Because that's a question from one of our um, group members from Kaiju Hime. And uh, yeah, I think it's a great question. What, what gave you that inspiration? Well, you know, this show has many parents. 
it Flintstones is, probably. Well, yes. I mean, I think I think that was that was sort of the easiest kind of comparison was to say, look, this was done before as the Flintstones. In network television, you know, originality is is not valued particularly. You have to be able to point to an antecedent and say this was done successfully before it uh, before people will spend money on something. Sure. But um, but the original inspiration for um, for this was Jim Henson's. You know, this was an idea he'd been kicking around for a long time. And again, that that very simple premise that um, that the dinosaurs, uh, like the like humans, uh, were were uh, bad uh, stewards of the world they lived in, that, that they lived, you know, that they, you know. So I remember there was a drawing that I think he that he had uh, Kirk Thatcher from from uh, the Henson Company who designed all the dinosaur costumes. Kirk's a great guy. I, I mean, if you want to ever talk to him, um, but uh, Kirk Thatcher did a drawing. And it was like dinosaurs smoking and sitting around, you know, drinking beer and stuff. And the, you know, or maybe it was a Gary Larson cartoon. But anyway, there's a there's that idea that that the dinosaurs were ugly Americans living very badly, and that's the reason that they died was was sort of the heart of the the idea that Jim Henson had. But then Jim Henson died. You know, I think probably I never met Jim Henson. A year before I came onto the project, um, Henson died, uh, and um, and Disney, which had just bought the Henson Company, handed the project over to Michael Jacobs and Bob Young. Michael Jacobs and, uh, and Bob Young were sitcom writers. They were guys who'd written, you know, multi-camera sitcoms for network television for years. Um, Michael created a show called My Two Dads and uh, Charles in Charge. You know, these were staples of the 1980s sitcom genre, live action shows with a live audience, you know? And this was Michael's big background. And so he wrote what he knew. He wrote a conventional sitcom and just, you know, but the, the nice twist was that they were these dinosaur characters that Jim Henson had envisioned. Uh, so that was, I mean, that was where it came from was this sort of merging of, of this, the Henson world and a very network friendly, family friendly sitcom uh, sensibility. And, and then, Michael and Bob, who you know created the show, they hired a staff of writers, and there was this was this young group of writers that was it was me was Victor Fresco, who's a brilliant writer, still a great friend, uh, who created uh, numerous American shows, Andy Richter controls the universe, uh, uh, Better Off Ted, uh, uh, most recently Santa Clarita Diet on Netflix. But oh, anyway, wow, I love that show. Yeah, Victor's a very funny guy with a very dry sense of humor. So uh, we all started basically at the same time. Me, Victor, uh, Rob Eulen, who uh, was a show, went on to be the showrunner on Roseanne, and uh, again, still a great friend. Um, Dave Kaplan and Brian LaPan. Dave Kaplan is working on the new version of Roseanne. Uh, these are all people, uh, this was this sort of new um, generation of sitcom writers that, that they brought in on this show. Uh, Jane Espenson was there. Jane is a Janie is famous for working on Buffy and um, oh. Joss Whedon projects. She's, I think she's in the UK right now doing the, the Nevers or whatever, uh, a, a new show for HBO. Uh, but Jane is, is great. I mean, there were all, there were, it, it was a remarkably talented group of young writers that Bob and Michael brought in to write this show. And our ambitions, you know, were to, I, I mean, like me and, 
we were very jealous of the Simpsons. We thought the Simpsons <laughs> was, you know, was the greatest thing in television history at that point. And, um, you know, uh, Rob Eulen had gone to Harvard and knew a lot of the Simpsons guys and very friendly, we were very friendly with them. And so I think there was this kind of, uh, you know, ridiculous one-sided rivalry with the Simpsons. The Simpsons clearly, you know, blew us out of the water in terms of, in terms of their success and, um, and you could argue quality, but we had this aspiration, I think, the, the young writers on the staff to let's give, let's, let's not let this be a dumb children's show. Let's, let's push this thing in terms of content and try to be as interesting and, and satiric and, uh, you know, hmm. uh, socially relevant as we could, as we could manage. And, and can, sorry. Good. No, that's right. I was just going to say, and after we take our first break, I would like to hear more about that because I think it's fascinating that a 90s show had so much cultural relevance and by the looks of what I've read, it's ahead of its time or was ahead of its time. So let's take our break and we'll dive right into that. Go. Hello and welcome back to Kaiju Curry House episode 64. We have our special guest, Mr. Tim Doyle. He was the writer for Disney's Dinosaurs and we've been learning about what went on behind the making of the show. Tim. You were talking about the social commentary and dinosaurs being ahead of its time when we broke off for our first break. Can you tell us more? Well, yes, again, I, I was, this was my first job in television. And, um, you know, as often the case with, um, with a newbie, with a, with a, you know, a green amateur, I had all the, um, you know, I had all the crazy optimism and enthusiasm of someone who didn't know what the they were doing. Um, so, uh, I was always pushing for the show to be more explicitly political, more, more aggressively uh, yeah, satiric, you know, to really just go right for the throat. You know, I wrote two of the I, I wrote two of the episodes that that go after network television directly. Uh, there's a one called Network Genius, uh, which where Earl takes over as a as the chief of uh, programming for a net, for the antediluvian broadcasting company, and uh, and another one called Family Challenge, where the family goes on a game show to win a new TV because they're so uh, they're so addicted to media that they can't survive without a television in their house. And um, you know, for someone who was so fresh to the to the medium, I was very aggressive about biting the hand that was currently feeding me. <laughs> it just you know, I have this kind of anti-authoritarian uh, demeanor, uh, which has you know gotten me in a lot of trouble uh, in you know in my in my childhood and and in my adult life, uh, where if you're my if you think you're my boss, if you think you can tell me what to do, I have to I have to come back at you aggressively, and uh, and so it was very funny and naive on my part to think that I knew enough about television to to uh, write material where I was basically telling. Uh, network television to go that it was that and 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 saying that it was you know bad and mind numbing and stuff. But we we continued to satirize television a great deal and and then, but we also were young and and I had you know I had a lot of political views and it was a it was a very lefty writing staff, um, you know not so much you know uh, Michael and Bob at the top but all these younger writers that were coming in for the most part. We're coming from that perspective. So, you know, we we did our nuts to war two-parter, which was basically our take on the first Gulf War in, you know, whatever, 1991, where we invaded, uh, where the United States and, and allied forces uh, invaded uh, Iraq. And, um, and uh, we did a whole episode where the 
the dinosaurs are pointlessly fighting over uh, their pistachio fields. You know, it, 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 it's the sort of we made the 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 argument that fighting over pistachios is nuts. Haha, <laughs> you know, and and that was a metaphor for the United States going to war and killing thousands of people to control the flow of oil in the Middle East. You know, and we and and the believe me, the metaphors are heavy handed. You if you watch those episodes now and you have any knowledge of the history we were living through at that time, we, we you know, we make fun of Reagan. We make fun of uh, George H.W. Bush and, you know, uh, uh, Richard Nixon. We have lots of references to politics all the way through uh, the series. Uh, we were we were incredibly aggressive about doing this stuff and the hilarious part is because we were his children's show, we were slightly off the radar uh, and there was not a lot of pushback from the studio or the network involved in the show uh, to, to prevent us from doing that kind of stuff. It's hard to picture now. I mean, I ran, I ran the Tim Allen show for three years, uh, the, the current Tim Allen show, uh, Last Man Standing, which again, I don't know if you have it in the UK, but, but Tim is very political. He's very right-wing guy. And, you know, I, you know, I sought to make that show sort of a modern all in the family, a show that was sort of taking on current social issues in the United States in, in, a, in a very direct way. And there was tremendous pushback, you know, five, six years ago when I was doing that show from the people involved from the studio and the network, not wanting to rock the boat politically. Uh, we had none of that 30 years ago when we did the dinosaur show. I don't remember being told that we couldn't take on some topic. And, uh, and again, I, maybe it's because we were a children's show, maybe the times were different, but uh, whatever it is, if we dreamed it up, we could pretty much do it. Was so that any episodes? Sorry, sorry, Joe, please. <laughs> what at that? So what episodes stand out for you among the ones that you worked on? Um, there was a lot of great subtext. Like I, I recently watched a lot of dinosaurs because I recently moved. So a lot of my DVD collections came out again, but I was... <laughs> I was astounded at the number of episodes that do get very heavy and yet are very well balanced for kids. Like they, it's like a soft lesson in a lot of what you're talking about, a lot of very complex issues. But what ones for you would you say stand out? Well, I mean, again, the ones that I, the, where I wrote the draft are more are more immediately in my head because I actually, I spent more time with those and, and probably spent a lot of time on the set while they were being shot to make sure that the, you know, that the, uh, the, the jokes and that the storytelling was executed properly. So I wrote about a dozen of them. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the two I mentioned network genius and, uh, and, um, and the, the TV one, uh, where the uh, family challenge, I think it's called. Uh, but, uh, we did, but uh, I don't know. I mean, obviously this, the, the finale, the infamous finale was a big deal and we all felt very strongly about it. The two part uh, episode we did on us to war. We did this, we did this crazy episode again. This, this is American politics and may not be relevant to, to you guys as much, but you know, there was the confirmation hearing for our Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas was in the news and Michael Jacobs, the boss came in one day it, uh, suddenly and scrapped the episode we were currently writing and said he had an idea in the shower and we very quickly wrote an episode uh, an episode called what sexual harris meant about a guy at the workplace named harris whose nickname was sexual because he made lots of really funny sexual remarks at work <laughs> and and then he gets sort of called on the carpet and there's a a version of the um 
of the congressional hearings for uh, for Clarence Thomas being held, whether this guy should get fired or lose his job or not because of because of his inappropriate sexual joking around at work. Well, this is a children's show, and we're doing a parody of the Clarence Thomas congressional hearings, which you you couldn't be wonkier than that at the time, and yet we we did this crazy episode. And I'm not saying it's one of our better ones, but damn it, we did it, you know? And we totally, we had, I mean, we had puppets that were parodying various political figures from the, the United States Senate and stuff at the time. It was, it, was, uh, it was insane what we got away with in that world. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of very memorable episodes and some that were just a lot of, that were just a lot of fun. I mean, that, that Network Genius episode, I think, has, because the, because the story is about Earl becoming in charge of a television network, there's a lot of these little parodies of TV shows in there that we show, um, you know, that, uh, that we allowed us to make fun of current shows that were on the air and really Blimey. go for it. You know, yes, and we did, and we did the yes, the Barney episode, and uh, uh, you know, but all through the series, we would usually start a scene with a with a free beat or a you know a little free beat of the baby watching something on television, and we would make fun of MTV or we would make fun of you know uh, one whatever current hit comedy show was on, My Two Dads, um, you know, or one of our our one of our competition at the time was a show called um, uh, called Unsolved Mysteries. Which was a you know American oh, yeah. show where yeah. they would you know they would you know they would explore various murders and things or they would take you know talk about Bigfoot or something but but this was like our big competition it was killing us you know one of the seasons we were on the air and so we did a whole episode where we were making fun of unsolved mysteries you know uh, and that, I mean that kind of stuff if something irked us or you know you know or we made fun of the Simpsons you know the Simpsons the Sim uh, the Simpsons made fun of us and we did a little bit making fun of the Simpsons you know uh, that kind of stuff there was a little bit of a of kind of a uh, competitive tit for tat going on with other shows that our friends were working on uh, and again sometimes the jokes were more for us than for anybody else and for some reason again uh, you know Disney and ABC gave us you know whatever two and a half million dollars an episode to do it. <laughs> we, you know, uh, to spend, you know, in production to do, to do these things. So, you know, it's, it's great work if you can get it. Yeah, sounds like a pretty good gig. Yeah. <laughs> in preparation for tonight's recording, I sat down with my daughter and started playing through some episodes because much to my outrage, it's not available on Disney Plus in the UK at the moment, which is a saddening. However, on YouTube, there's quite a few episodes, low quality, but I was watching one episode, which is the uh, the terrible twos. And I'm having oh, to have I wrote this, that one. Uh, that, yeah. That's a wonderful episode. I'm having to have this conversation with my daughter, Emma, who's six, saying, well, it, it, it's a spoof of The Exorcist. And she's looking at me blank. And it's like, yes, there's a man <laughs> dressed as a priest turning up to do an exorcism of the toddler and the head spinning round. And what I loved was that I was cackling with kind of my adult perspective now. And my daughter, who is the same age as I probably was when I was first watching Dinosaurs, and she was howling of laughter when later on in one episode that we watched, the baby's just taking the dad saying, not the mama. So it worked yeah. wonderfully on two very opposing levels, which is... It's fabulous. Sign of good writing. Yeah. Well, yes. And also it's like, we weren't all, you know, we weren't all politics all the time. I mean, an episode like Terrible Twos was a commentary on parenting, right? I mean, yeah. we, and, and the sort of the cliche that children have, you know, are, are out of control, you know, uh, you know, at a certain age. And they there were lots of great parenting moments in dinosaurs. 
Yeah, we did an episode about Earl losing his parenting license, and we tra- treated the subject as if it was like a, um, you know, a, uh, a driving license, you know, because he was, he was, uh, the, the, the cop pulled him over and he was doing something inappropriate with the baby in the car, you know, he was being whatever, too rough with the baby in the car or something, so he loses his parenting license, you know, and that, and, and, and it's sort of, it, it's kind of thoughtful, and we, and we have a funny line in there about, it's like, you know, you need to have a license to, uh, you know, to fish or to drive a car, you know, why should you have, you know, get a license to have a child, which is, is kind of funny, but it's also like, yeah, that is kind of true. It's like a lot of idiots have children and, uh, and, and we don't, you know, and, and society bears the burden of it. Uh, you know. Who wrote Hurling it's, Day? And Hurling oh, Day. Lord. Yeah. Oh, Lord. <laughs> did, did you write Hurling Day? Well, that one is written, uh, I think that one, yes, that was Rob Eulen, uh, uh wrote that one it was one of our very first episodes and it was one of it was one of the concepts i think that michael and bob uh who created the show they walked in the door with i think i think that was something that they had they had sort of had in their head from the start because it was one of the initial episodes yes uh, that that was one that i had on my vhs as a kid in the (laughs) 90s um and i i just remember but 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 it's a great commentary it's wonderful of of how we treat the elderly absolutely but I, I just remember my dad just howling of laughter at the idea that over a certain age, it's a um, it's a bloke's sort of rite of passage to throw his mother-in-law off a cliff. And it's just, yes. <laughs> there, were, yeah. there were so many like hilarious parenting family consumerism ideas, like you said, like I remember the one with like refrigerator day. I mean, that, that was just, that ridiculous. Was, yeah, now that was that great. was Victor. That was Victor Fresco. He wrote that script, and that's that's got Victor's voice all over it. That wonderful dry quality of people celebrating a refrigerator and decorating a refrigerator to honor the the uh, the, the historic turn where we could store food, so we didn't have to migrate constantly <laughs> to to look for additional food. You know, but I, it I is it is obviously was, a cornerstone of all civilization. The good refrigerator. Yeah. So, and and that was one of the elements we were dealing with in our story breaking early on was okay. These are the first dinosaurs to settle down and have families and live this way. You know, so what does that mean to them, right? You know, uh, I mean that was part of the concept that Michael Jacobs and Bob Young started with, uh, and that was much more their kind of mindset was. Um, you know, the, Michael's funny premise was always that that um, civilization sucked for men. That that you know, becoming civilized, you know, where you know that that men were happier, men and male dinosaurs were happier when they could basically just wander around and kill whoever they wanted to kill and eat whatever they wanted to eat and stuff. And that the the impulse to become domesticated and to live in a house and have families, you know, just strip them of all dignity, you know. And and that was kind of the working premise for a lot of the early episodes, especially on the show, was that this this recent indignation had been visited upon the character of Earl. And, and, you know, and he wanted nothing to do with it and he resisted it. But then of course, you know, the baby would tug at his heartstrings or something and he would realize that being a daddy and, and having a family was much more rewarding than rampaging across the, a, a uh, you know, a prehistoric hellscape, uh, eating and killing and pillaging wherever he wanted to. So that was because in that first episode, he has like a a heart to heart conversation with what he plans to be his dinner. I remember that because he goes out into the wilderness (laughs) in a straw and um, his wife just basically kicks him out because he's been a grump. And then he addresses this little rodent and the rodent sort of like sat there like, oh, yeah, you destroyed my family's home. And he's like, oh, my my bad. Now having a a good natter. Then at the end, that's it, you know, and he, he tries to eat him, doesn't he? But he can't quite do it. Yeah. 
Well, that was the tug of war, uh, certainly that we started with. I mean, when you when you create a series, you know, you have to have a couple of tricks in your back pocket. You have to have a couple of places to go for stories. You know, you can't just do this, the pilot episode over and over again. So, you know, that was one of the things that we were working with in breaking stories for the show. And that was very much, I think, Michael Jacobs uh, sensibility. By the way, that little creature was hand puppeted and and voiced by Brian Henson, Jim Henson's son, who was an executive producer on the show and also, you know, a, a key creative element through, uh, you know, throughout the series and and still the guy who runs the Henson company. Okay. So, um, Tim, what is the writing process for these episodes? I mean, how many how many drafts does it go through? How long has it taken? How many writers, you know, are involved from start to finish? Well. I mean, again, network television and, and now with streaming, the things, things vary a, a little bit, but, uh, but comedy, I think, is a little more fixed. You know, when writing comedy is such a different world than writing like a, you know, Grey's Anatomy or something like that. I, I, those people are barely in the same business that I'm in, you know, because uh, writing comedy is, 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 in the United States anyway, is almost always very collaborative. You know, the idea is to make the show as funny as possible. I, I mean, I know like in the in the UK with the, you know, oh, we're good, well, let's do let's do six of these, you know, and, and, and one writer sits down and, you know, over the course of a few months, writes six episodes of a of a comedy show. And, you know, and and, and some of them are obviously brilliant. But but in America, it's like in network television, certainly in the 90s, you had to have the expectation you were going to do 24 during the course of a season. And so no one writer is going to be able to do that no matter how prolific and talented. So, you know, a writing staff was required and then built up, you know, and the writing staff would be this piece of machinery that had all these functioning parts of, of people with varying skill levels and varying skills. So you would have, you know, there are people that are mostly about jokes. There are people that are mostly about stories. There are people who just bring a wonderful off kilter sensibility to it. There are people who are better at writing drafts than other people, you know, and you have a writing staff. Uh, most of the shows I've worked on, the comedy show I've worked on, have a writing staff of about 10 people. Uh, I think Dinosaurs, when we started, had like seven uh, and we sat on couches in Michael Jacobs' office and we kicked around the ideas for the stories. And then uh, an outline would be written. Uh, somebody would write the outline. Uh, usually that was the writer who's gonna end up having their name on the story. And, um, and, and that outline would go through a process of submission to the studio and to the network to get their thoughts on it. And, oh, then, okay. and th there's a little bit of pushback there sometimes, again, not so much on dinosaurs, but but most of the shows I've worked on since then, you know, there's a tug of war with uh, at the story level with the studio and the network people, and then you would address those notes, you deal with those concerns, you reassure them that you're not going to do something stupid and terrible, and then and then once the story is approved, the the writer uh, gets a little bit of money, they get a, they get paid for the outline, and then they get sent off theoretically to write a draft. And again, they, they usually in television in the old days anyway, would get 10 days to two weeks to go off by themselves and, and, and pound through a draft of the, of the episode. And then that is brought back to the group and either, and usually the boss, the executive producer, the showrunner uh, reads it and says, oh, I have some problems with this. And sometimes they'll send you off to do a second draft on your own, or sometimes they'll just table it right there they'll they'll take it to the group and the group will begin tearing it apart and rewriting it as a group at that point so uh it's it's not too it's not too terrible there's an outline process drafts are written and then it gets rewritten by the group 
and and then and then you and then in comedy you tend to have a table reading, right? Where the actors, in this case, uh, it wasn't usually the voice actors; it was usually the puppeteers. The puppeteers, uh, because the voice actors came in last, and and uh, and uh, and the puppeteers were the ones who had to execute the show. They had to play the scenes, you know. So the puppeteer who played Earl or the puppeteer who played Fran, you know, who was a man, uh, you know, would sit around the table and they would be like, honey, I'm concerned about Robbie. You know, he got in trouble at school about the following problem. You know, I have and they to ask would... this question. I have to cut sure. you off here. So Fran's actually a man in that costume. Well, there so... were a couple of there were a couple of different people in the costume over the years, but both of them are men. Yes. Okay. Okay. But what I what I'm getting and at the puppeteer here, and the guy operating was was a man. Yes. I have what I have to get at here though is just like you all sat probably snickering listening to Earl, who's a man, sure. and then Fran, who is a man. Now, did the actor who played Fran make any attempt to disguise the voice and sound like Fran, or was that just straight? Oh no, he would do it. I mean. I think, oh, okay, I mean, so that's even fun. better now. Yeah. That's even funnier. <laughs> no, no, the, I mean, the hence, you have to be in a picture, the Henson people were very serious about their puppeteering, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it was, it was a bone of contention, actually, that the puppet, because Henson had never done it this way before, that the puppeteers weren't doing the voices, you know, there was, there was a lot of strong feeling um, in the Henson community that that was a violation that, that, you know, that the performing of the puppet and the voice were very tied together. You know, and we or the you know the the network or whatever held their ground and said no no we want these comedy voices more famous people you know you know uh, you know Jessica Walter and you know and uh, I just get a kick out of a guy doing dinosaur drag basically that that's oh, yeah. what's going out of my mind oh yeah it's no, fantastic I, absolutely and these but these guys were you know these guys were very professional about it and and I don't I mean. I don't think there was that much snickering. The, the snickering would come if if they were terrible, you know, if they were if they were just bad at it. Yeah, or again, David Greenaway, who had this very heavy some kind of English accent, I couldn't begin to identify it for you. But David, who was who was Earl, would be like, "Hey, Pally boy, uh, uh, I'm angry at Mr. Richfield. He's you know," and, and 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 that would always make us laugh because it was so different from the vo the the voice of Sam McMurray, who ended up doing it. So that would be very amusing. Uh, we all did our Dave Greenaway imitation basically by putting our finger in our mouth and going, "Hey, Pally boy," he had this you know this. I don't know what happened to David, but he was a, he was a crazy and wonderful guy. Uh, he's probably out there still somewhere. We have approached our second break, folks. When we return, we will hear more wonderful stories about this um, Emmy Award winning show. And then we're going to give our own personal recommendations for favorite episodes and other media that you can enjoy. Thank you. Welcome back to Kaiju Curry House. I'm Tim Doyle, and I'm here uh, talking to my friends about the the, the much beloved, uh, no longer uh, current uh, dinosaurs program uh, from the early '90s. And, very uh, current. Well, very and it's, current. yeah, yeah, and it's and it's well, it's currently reviving on um, on the Disney Plus in the United States, and I think they're going to be getting it to the UK too. You know, I'm not quite sure they what the thinking to. was, not rolling it to. out there when they rolled it out here, but um, I expect you'll be able to see it there soon. Yeah, we'll yeah. keep our eyes peeled. Netflix They're does made... the same thing, so. Absolutely. Yeah, it does, yeah, frustratingly. Well, you, now, they also, they Disney Plus has like a, a, a different thing, uh, Disney Plus Star or something in the UK? Is that Ah, the... yeah, where, oh. you get, where you get like the really? movies, like where Mulan comes out like the same uh, days in theater or whatever. You I, can get I, I, oh, okay. I think what I'm hearing is that you might end up on that, 
right uh, okay or something but again i i all i'm all i'm you know all i know is what i i read on twitter um tim your show won the environmental media award three times in 1993 and it also won a primetime emmy award for season one episode two the mating dance so great episode yeah tell us about some of these awards that it won and why you think it was um you know so well received because the the reception levels are fantastic it's a very highly regarded show why is that uh it was a remarkable show i mean you know it was hard to categorize at the time and i think it surprised people um I, uh, from the inside, it didn't feel like we were massively successful. I think we were always being told that we were on the verge of cancellation every, every minute. You know, they, they never want to let you get too comfortable, um, the bosses. But, uh, but we were proud of what we were doing, and I, and I think we were doing good work. And, and, but there was such an uh, impressive technological element to it that, I, I mean, the, the suits with the mm. walk-around suits with the computer, a giant computer on your head, and, and the puppeteering, remote puppeteering and all that, 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 that was very ambitious for network television at the time. So I think people completely appreciated that. And then as far as the environmental media awards go, I mean, we were, you know, it was basically us and I think every year and Captain Planet, uh, which was a, car- a children's cartoon show. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, oh my gosh, <laughs> you're just bringing back my childhood yeah. now. Right, but I think that was it. I mean, we were the two shows on, the, on television that was saying, you know, don't dump your uh, chemicals into the river and don't, you know, don't, don't whatever. push don't, over trees. Don't, yeah. yeah, don't destroy all the trees. Don't, don't decimate a, a complete ecosystem, uh, you know, uh, thoughtlessly. Uh, so I do feel that we, we um, may have indoctrinated a generation of, of young people to some extent, at least these ideas. Again, we were talking about climate change. You know, at the time, I think it was more generally called global warming. And I remember Andy Goodman, who actually left our show to become an executive with the uh, with the um, uh, the Environmental Media Association mm-hmm. or whatever it was. And he was a writer on the show. And I remember him correcting us and saying, you don't call it global warming because then, you know, because that confuses people when it snows, you know, so we're, we're you know, we're gripping. Okay. We, we started the, the we were among the first i think to reference climate change as being sort of the discussion to be having about the damage we were doing to the the uh, the environment uh, the serious long-term damage we were doing to the environment uh, and yes and we hit it like with an extremely heavy hand with that uh, changing nature episode in the whatever the fourth season where the yes the the big evil corporation we say so that they work for uh, destroys the environment and a series of sort of chain reaction events essentially destroys the world and uh, and leads to a you know it leads to a uh, spoiler alert uh, a, an ice age which kills uh, the dinosaur. I don't think I don't think that's necessarily a spoiler anymore. I mean it, it's happened <laughs> if you if you, if you haven't heard about it by now. I mean are we agreeing that thirty years on we can like we can drop spoilers? Is that okay? On the Ice Age, maybe. <laughs> it should come as no surprise to anyone that the dinosaurs, uh, you know, are no longer with us. Yeah. You know, we all sort of know that. And, and uh, there have been, I mean, I think uh, uh, we, we attributed it to an Ice Age. I think there's been new thinking about that, that it, that it might have, that it was an Ice Age that might have been triggered by volcanic events or asteroids mm. or whatever, we, uh, you know. Well, I mean, that, that would be the blocking sun. out the sun. Yeah, that would be, yes. And that would yeah. be 
kind of some interesting stuff for us to revisit 30 years on is some of the new thinking about dinosaurs and 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 the they need the, feathers now demise. yes That's i mean that was that was mm -hmm. we didn't i don't think we even touched on that you know the movie jurassic park came out i think somewhere in like our last season and that was the first time i had heard this theory that the dinosaurs had actually a common ancestor with birds and birds so, actually are dinosaurs that's how or, far it's come yeah so it, it's gotten so we would, really we neat. would have to we'd have to deal with that i'm sure if we did an episode now that that earl would be indignant at at the, the insistence of some bird family that they're related or whatever you know and and he you know he would be angry and want to eat them or something so uh there's there would be there would be some new topics to deal with and obviously the uh, uh i as much as 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 donald trump uh in america you know is, is so become so reminiscent of Mr. Richfield and his bombast and his, you know, his mouth. Can I just say that he was one of my favorite characters in that show. And it wasn't even the things that he said. It was just his facial expressions. Just like whenever he would look at Earl. And I mean, this, this is, a, this is just due cred to the Jim Henson company for like his facial expressions. But like every time he looked at Earl, it was just like, now, just how stupid are you? Are you like yes. just that indignant, like <laughs> angry, just like he's got his head tilted, his beady eyes are just staring right out. It's just like, I want to giggle every time I see that because it's just like, you know, that, this torrent of abuse is about to start. That point when early on in the show, Earl gets encouraged by his friends to go and ask for a raise. <laughs> and Dangerous. the pause and sort of the look of, utter contempt from the boss it's just he just stops everything just looks yeah it's just like this is a gag no he's yeah, serious it's amazing but it, what i love about dinosaurs and I, i'm appreciating more now as an adult is that the broad range of topics you do cover because fair enough you do cover climate change you also cover you know corporate crime you also cover tele-evangelism and the exploitation potatoism and, right it was the great potato and the <laughs> There's a lot of things that, yes, it's hilarious to watch, but there's some poignancy to it as well, because there are, it's sad that these are real issues that you're looking at, you know, it's... Well, it's sad that there's still issues yeah. today, that 30 years later, we're, you know, uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's good and terrifying that the show is, is relevant today because Absolutely. We, have, we haven't solved these problems. They no. continue to, um, you know, they continue to sort of tear our society apart. Uh, and the, the solutions have been so slow rolled to a lot of these issues that, that uh, you know, one would have definitely thought 30 years ago that we would have figured these things out by now. But God love us, we stubbornly cling to our dinosaur ways. Can I ask a question about an episode? I mentioned it during our break, but um, you spoke earlier about going back and forth to the network uh, with what you guys have written in the uh, drawing room as it is. And, you know, just understanding what concepts you can throw into a kid's show and what may or may not be dangerous, how you want to lead things, what impressions you want to give. A New Leaf is an episode that I recall. And um, I told you that one of my favorite parts was the Purple Haze uh, yep. that Richfield sings, which is amazing. Yep. But can you just take us through like that episode? It, it's, it's one of those ones where it showed that, I mean, like, don't go to like your parents' groups, whoever's listening to this, but you know, like drugs have effects that can be desired, but you can have too much of a good thing and you need to recognize the concept or the consequences of said thing. And you need to understand 
what it can do to you. So those are very like complex uh, concepts to just throw into a children's show. And then on top of that, you're doing it with dinosaurs and you're doing all of these different things like with that. So I've seen like, you know, like it was the early nineties in the United States and I grew up in that time period and in that place. So I, like, I saw dare, I saw all sorts of like anti-drug programs for kids, but when Earl and Robbie have the happy plant, it does make them happy, <laughs> but <laughs> chores and society and things like, how did you, how did you guys get that concept to a level that is palatable with the television audience that you were going for. Well, again, that's the great thing about a, a group writing situation, especially where you you know you've got people that are are in, very much in sync. And you know, Michael Jacobs, you know, he came from that background of <clears throat> of of shows like of, of shows that were for younger people that skewed younger. Uh, My two dads and uh, Charles in Charge and stuff, and they did. Very, and Michael went on to do Boy Meets World, was another show he created. Oh, nice. uh, but Michael had a history of doing these kinds of shows that would have their special drug episode, you know, and then and, and it would end with you know Kirk Cameron or whoever was the star of the show turning to the camera at the end and say, "Hey, we've had a lot of fun tonight," you know, talking about a very serious topic. But you know, but drugs are not a joke, kids. You know, you should stay in school and not take drugs and blah blah blah. And there would be like a little PSA at the end of it. And Michael had a had a history of being involved in that kind of very earnest sort of treatment of, of drug stuff. Uh, what was great about the dinosaurs is that they were they were naifs. They were they didn't they were completely unfamiliar. They didn't carry any uh, any uh, historic or societal baggage into these discussions. So you know it wouldn't be like a show now where you know some kid is vaping some weed or something and his parents you know walk in and know immediately from the smell what that is. You know we would. He, they had to discover this thing and initially decide that it was a good thing, work through the whole process and then realize that it had a downside, you know, that there was some downside to it. And, and that, that was one of the advantages of them being these, you know, these creatures who had just invented civilization. You know, it, it, was, it, was, a, it was a big storytelling advantage. But yeah, we, we, we sat in the room, we kicked stuff around, we had lots of funny ideas that we linked together. You know, the Purple Haze song, I'm sure Amazing. that our... I'm sure that our composer, uh, the uh, Ray Colcord, who did the music for the show, I'm sure he went to town on that. I don't remember that recording session particularly, but but we did a lot of that kind of stuff, um, you know. Uh, and we and we would purposely do parodies of of music performers in the um, in the uh, in the other episode, the I never ate for my father, the vegetarian episode. You know, he goes to a a a an herbivore coffee bar where, where we had a guy doing Bob Dylan, you know, had doing like Bob, it was like a beatnik bar. And, they, and we did like a whole Bob Dylan medley. Um, so that we had a lot of fun with stuff like that. But this is, again, this is one of the things in my mind that really recommends group writing because you get a bunch of people together to generate just a lot of really fun ideas, brainstorming those ideas. Then Rob Eulen went off and wrote a really great draft of that episode. I remember it specifically. I remember visiting him and, and helping him a tiny little bit uh, when he was working on his draft. And then, uh, you know, and then it comes back and gets rewritten. So layer upon layer of comedy gets jammed into the thing like a you know like a uh, a fruitcake you know just stuffed full of good wonderfulness and you end up in the editing room have to chop out a lot of good stuff 
uh, because there were so many good ideas that got dumped on that episode. Gentlemen, we have come towards the end of the episode and Tim, as our guest, uh, as you're unfamiliar, what we normally do is put out our own personal recommendations, just a quick snippet. It could be, in this case, a favourite episode from this show, rather appropriately, or it could be a book that you've read recently that you think, you know what, check this out. Or I do think, Tim, now's a chance to plug your own uh, autobiographical show. So what we'll do is we'll go around the table, starting with yourself, Paul, if nothing else, what can you recommend to our listeners? Okay, well, uh, when we're thinking about dinosaurs, it kind of took me on a nostalgia trip of, you know, 90s kid shows. And, and I was trying to think, oh, what what can I mention when this comes up? And first thought was Denver, the last dinosaur. Um, Denver! Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I know. What? Oh, I, I have no idea what you're talking. No, okay. no. Oh, I still remember okay. that theme song. The, you yeah. can't you can't unforget that thing. It was amazing. But, I, but then I decided of a different show to mention, actually, which is live action to go more in line with dinosaurs, which was Land of the Lost. Do oh, you remember yes. that? Oh, I own every single episode of that. Oh, do you really? Yes. Oh. It is Sid and Marty Croft. They did the original Land of the Lost, which Tim, you might. Was that in the 70s? Yeah, it was. It was it, a while back. Um, stop motion animation and stuff. It was a bit older. And then it got brought back again in the early 90s. So that's now, it. I remember the early 90s. And yeah, it was the. It, um, it was, a, it was a you know friendly family kids like Saturday morning TV show. It was it was in. Uh, well, Farrell did a did a movie. They did a movie. He did yeah. They did a remake. Like, well, like, they, a, like fifteen years ago. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But the the second series really shines, and it's it's fantastic in terms of practical effects. There's some stop motion animation. There are puppets. I dare say that Scarface is the scariest dinosaur. Well, that's, yeah, we've got a, 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 yeah, Scarface. He was a one eyed T Rex, wasn't he? Who was the, the villain? Yeah. Along with a stop motion like cyborg from the future who also the, got stuck. The Cyrax. Yeah. Was the that Cyrax. Was called Cyrax. Yeah, I remember him. Like he was he had trouble breathing on our planet, didn't he? Because, yeah. Uh, yeah. Couldn't chase you for long. Couldn't yeah. chase you for long. Yeah. But um yeah, so basically was it a group a family are going family. going for a ride and yeah. and they what they they go through some sort of wormhole and end up in a parallel time. It's good fun. It's so As you good. say, there's puppetry. Um, you've got like a, it's like a native, too. a native woman who or, who travelled back in time from earlier on. Um, yeah, like a, they make friend of a child dinosaur. It's it's family friendly. It's great fun. I don't think it's ever been released on DVD or Blu-ray, but there's episodes mm. on YouTube. Yeah, I thought it was VHS only, unless you know otherwise, Joe. Um. Tim, if nothing else, what can you recommend to our listeners, be it television, be it film, whatever you like? doesn't have to be monsters, free reign. Well, again, I, I, I will bring up The Kids Are All Right, which unfortunately shares the name of, a, of an amazing Who uh, album from the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and, and, a, and, a, and a very nice lesbian movie from about 10 years back. But um, that was, I didn't name the show. I gave them like 70 names and they picked that one. But um, it was a short-lived uh, live action, you know, family show uh, that ran on ABC for 23 episodes a year and a half ago and uh, got canceled under dumb circumstances. Mm. Uh, uh, I think they would be very grateful to have that show back now. Uh, but of course they can never admit that they're wrong. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, currently, uh, it's currently screening or uh, st streaming on uh, Hulu in the United States. I don't know how it is available in the UK, but I've gotten, I've gotten emails and stuff from people I know in Ireland about mm. it. 
so it's probably accessible there somewhere. Um, I think it's, um, it's I think well worth a look. content on Amazon. Um, sometimes it's included. Sometimes it's mm. you have to pay for it. But I'm pretty sure it's, it'll be available on Amazon. I'll check but it's well, it's it's well worth a look. It's uh, it's it's. I mean, I'm very very proud of it, and and it is genuinely autobiographical. It's all about my family. I grew up in Glendale, California, near Hollywood, in the in the 1970s, and I have seven brothers. I can, uh, a huge Irish Catholic family of eight boys, uh, and um, it's. Again, it's 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 a great show that just slipped under the radar. It didn't quite get the uh, notice that it deserved. Well, thank you for that. Um, for myself, I would like to recommend season one, episode three of Dinosaurs, which is my favourite episode, <laughs> and, that, and that's Hurling Day, uh, uh, written by um, Mr. Tim Doyle. No, Rob Yule. Oh, oh Rob, my, my bad. Uh, written right. by your esteemed colleague, who I'll definitely have to meet then. So I'd like to recommend Hurling Day. Along with that, I recently watched an absolutely glorious film, uh, which I'm going to plug now. Uh, it's 2017's The Void. And that was a fairly indie horror that I stumbled across just looking through Amazon Prime. And it's a good sign of a film when you can watch the entire thing and only realize in the end credits that it was run by Kickstarter. That, that, that's a good testament <laughs> to a film because it was completely crowdfunded. It's all practical special effects. It's a very, very hard R film. It's incredibly violent. Um, it's sort of a Lovecraftian horror with lots of kind of cultists and tentacles coming out of people. It's classic kind of monster horror. But you know what? I picked it up on Amazon for £5, so it was worth a shot and I was delighted with it. Um, Joe, if nothing else. Right, so... There are no bad episodes of Dinosaur. I will say that. I enjoyed each and every single one. Uh, the first episode I ever saw of Dinosaur, which to this day remains one of my favorites, is Endangered Species. I thought it was, I thought it was just going to end dark, but there was just a little glimmer of light at the end, which I'm glad that all the writers threw that in. Um, so I, that's from season two and that is episode 10, An Endangered Species. I'm going to go ahead and recommend that anybody who thinks that ridiculous films are great, Tammy and the T-Rex is currently available on Amazon in the United Kingdom. Alex is shaking his head. No. Nope. nope. You don't trust me after Legend of the well, Dinosaurs you know Monster Birds? <laughs> it's my birthday coming up. Actually, I've got a birthday this year, funnily enough. Ooh. Yeah. So maybe a present for me? Maybe, maybe, but I can't see how a, a, a boyfriend with his brain and a Tyrannosaurus Rex and Denise Richard as his girlfriend, how how could this movie be bad, even if I haven't seen it yet? No, but there we go. That's that's plausible science. That that makes total sense. Totally, totally. Just I'd be mean, like, there we are. But no, yeah. it's, a, it's an issue we're going to have to face sooner or later uh, anyway in our society. Yes. The, the transplanting of brains into yep. prehistoric uh, extinct creatures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's bound to happen. I am, I am waiting for that day. That would be rad. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you folks, as always, for listening to this episode of Kaiju Curry House. Please check us out on Twitter at Curry Kaiju or at UK Kaiju Fans. And um, keep it Kaiju, folks.